You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. We're going to dive right into this podcast this week. We've, we're out of the series of topography and habitat management and how they all coincide together. So let's go ahead and give you a brief rundown. We've got Kip Adams from QDMA coming on. We're going to talk CWD, youth season, deer hunting success, and habitat improvement as always. Matt? We're covering a broad spectrum today. And honestly, I like I like these podcasts because they're just open. They're free. It's like, okay, yeah, let's touch on this. Let's touch on that. Let's just catch up. That's dangerous, Kip. though. It is. Oh, it's dangerous. We could open up cans of worms that we don't mean to. But you know what? That's when the good, juicy facts and, and stuff just comes out, you know? Facts or opinions come out. Well, it Sometimes depends. both. Yeah. And I, I'm... I always love talking to Kip. He's a wealth of knowledge, um, and I, I've seen we follow him on Instagram, and he makes some. I I just love the posts from the QDMA guys, Matt Ross, Lindsey Thomas, all those guys that just they always have interesting stuff. And Kip had some deer hunting success, but it was involving his kids, and it was it was um, awesome to see. And I can't wait to talk to him. I think. I think a, a good word or phrase that would describe them is like, they're just class acts, you know? Mm-hmm. They're just good people. They I like are. I like, I like friends like that. They're, they're like you and I. They're deer hunters at heart. That's kind of the root of their core. And they've kind of taken that and gone with it into, like you and I, we're passionate about land. So we've kind of gone into this whole land consulting and, and even real estate and everything land they're passionate about deer, and they've kind of dove into the QDMA world, and now they're everything is deer. Um, they dove in head first. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so, anyway, um, can't wait to have Kip on. Let's go ahead and get him on. Let's do it. Well, we got Kip Adams on the line here. We're going to be discussing all kinds of topics today. And go, let's go ahead and get Kip on. Kip, are you there? I'm here. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, great to always have you on. Uh, it's been a while since we talked last, but there's a lot of things that's, I guess, came out in the world of deer, and uh, we wanted to get you on and, and talk about some of the things that are, I think, probably weighing a lot on everybody's mind if they're really paying attention to what's going on in the world of deer right now. And uh, we saw last week you were at a CWD symposium, and we just wanted to have you on and, and bring us up to speed. Ah, good deal. Um, yeah, actually, the Michigan DNR uh, and the Michigan uh, Department of Ag hosted uh, that CWD symposium, which really turned out to be the, the biggest meeting on CWD uh, in all of North America this year. So uh, wow. I was very pleased to go and, and represent uh, free-ranging deer and deer hunters. And uh, I tell you what, I learned a lot. There were some of the, the top disease uh, researchers and managers uh, from throughout North America there. So uh, it was a great couple of days in Michigan. Well, good deal. I'm I... You know, it's, it's, it's encouraging to hear that, you know, you've got a state DNR and then some ag people working together to try and get that information out there. Um, and then good representatives like yourself to, to be able to support um, 
hunters and, and just free ranging deer. That, that's awesome. So if you, if you don't mind kind of breaking down, um, I know we, we've, we've talked with you about CWD before. Um, I know our listeners are um, kind of up to date and familiar with it all. Um, but what are some of the things that stood out to you that you learned um, in the world of CWD? Well, the, the, the symposium was divided into two days. And the first day, all of the talks were about the science of the disease. You know, it was researchers, you know, what are they learning specifically about CWD itself? Then the second day uh, was all about management of it. So, uh, mm-hmm. hey, here are states that are dealing with it, and here are some of the tactics they're trying to help minimize the, the spread of the disease or, in some cases, you know, introduction of the disease. So uh, right. the first day was great. Um, you know, I try to stay up to speed with all of the, the research that's out there, but it was really cool to hear it right from the horse's mouth and uh, see, you know, what they're finding, you know, kind of how their research is done. But as much as anything, guys, it's, hey, you know what, we know a lot about it, but, man, there is a lot we don't know about the disease. So it was nice to hear them talk about where some of the, the research needs are and, uh, and where some of the future projects need to be directed so that we can learn more about the disease to be able to fight it better. Awesome. So, you know, I think it's pretty common knowledge that, you know, a, lo- a lot of the disease is spread by contact with deer um, and, and the transporting of deer. Um, you know, was this brought up and, and to what degree is there, is there additional research going into um, studying the spread of it? Um, or is it more just kind of looking at like the life cycle of the disease? Um, a little bit of both, and uh, particularly from the spread. Um, you know, we know that it's spread in the you know, urine and saliva and feces and blood. One of the things they don't know, though, is, is you know, how much of the infectious uh, materials in any of those uh, does it take to actually infect the deer? Right. And that's a huge thing right now. As, as you've seen, you know, some states are banning uh, natural urine products from being used mm-hmm. because we know those prions are in the urine. But what, what they don't know is, hey, does it take, you know, a few drops of urine to, to infect a deer? Does it take, you know, a gallon of urine? Um, nobody knows that for sure. So that's a big deal, you know, when you have states who are being conservative, and, and rightly so, I think in some cases, you know, to, to not want to spread the disease. But, uh, man, as managers, we really need to know how much of that urine you know, really is necessary, you know, to contaminate a deer so that we're not, you know, unnecessarily asking hunters to give up something uh, that, that they may enjoy hunting with if it's really not helping in the fight against CWD. Right. No, that, that, that makes perfect sense to have that quantifiable number to be able to associate with, okay, this is what's happening, and this is why, and this is what it takes to be able to, to transfer that disease over to different deer. Yeah, and one thing, you know, it's a little frustrating for, for many hunters because the two ways that CWD is most easily spread is through movement of live animals, and that's either, you know, captive deer facilities, and it's also some state wildlife agencies are moving deer mm-hmm. and, and moving elk. Utah relocates mule deer every year. You know, Wisconsin is relocating elk from Kentucky. West Virginia is relocating elk. So uh, we know that moving live animals is the easiest way to move the disease. Um, the second easiest way is if we're moving, you know, high-risk parts of carcasses, you know, eyes, brain, uh, spleen, backbone, you know, deer we've harvested. So, uh, you know, it's a little frustrating sometimes for hunters to say, you know what, we know that those two ways move at the best, but yet many cases states are not doing anything for those. And not that they sometimes they can't because of political reasons, but to allow those things to happen, but then ban urine or, or something else, you know, that has a, a very low likelihood of moving the disease. 
um, you know, get, gets frustrating for hunters. And so that's why I think we're losing some of the support for agency programs in some states, you know, because of little things like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes total sense. It, it kind of, it seems like everyone needs to be on, on board and have that same kind of mission. Um, and that's to learn as much as I can. And then what they do know about it is to um, try and implement rules and regulations to slow the spread and, and help control it best. I yeah, think, and, I, and this that statement certainly is, is not meant, you know, to, to chastise any state wildlife agencies who are, who are not able to stop the live spread or live movement of deer. And I know there's a lot of them that are trying it that just simply can't. But uh, fortunately, there are many more states now that are, are uh, you know, have little higher uh, carcass restrictions with regard to where you can bring carcasses in from. You know, as hunters, that one's really on us. We just need to do a better job not moving those high-risk parts around because, uh, you know, it, we're the ones that are going to benefit by being, you know, a little smarter about not moving those parts. So that one's kind of on us. We need to do a better job of that. For sure, for sure. I guess, you know, there's a lot of different um, methods, I'm sure, that, you know, in addition to that, you know, moving of, of carcasses and transporting of live animals that different states are using. Um, can you talk about some of those other control methods and some that came up or, or some that other states might be beginning to implement in the in the near future? Sure. One of the big discussions there was on ALR restrictions, you know, whether states should use them or not in the face of the disease. And that, well, the idea is we know that, uh, you know, adult bucks are, are two to four times more likely to have the disease than, than yearling bucks. So some states are saying, you know what, we're not going to protect any yearling bucks. We want to kill all bucks when they're younger. And um, states like Missouri have removed ALR restrictions. Arkansas has removed them. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, says, you know what, we have the disease. There's no way we're removing antler restrictions, partly because, hey, here's the thing. On paper, yeah, young age structure is really what's good for the disease, but it's young age structure from both bucks and does. And, uh, you know, low densities, young age structures, that's how you fight a disease. Well, it works great on paper, but in the real world, that doesn't work that well because you need hunters to implement that plan. You know, and hunters just simply aren't willing in most cases to drive deer herds very low and have young age structures on both sides. So uh, what, what my stance is, and I'm glad that Pennsylvania's taking the stance, they said, hey, you know what? We understand that older bucks are more likely to have the disease, but it is so important to hunters to have that opportunity to hunt some older bucks that if doing so, they stay engaged, they continue harvesting animalist deer and are, are part of our program, then it's better to have some older bucks out there as long as those hunters continue to hunt and kill analyst deer. And I think that's a perfect place to be, um, partly because if you take a look, um, you know, you pick a state, you know, outside of South Texas, you can pick any state you want. And for every four or five-year-old buck, even though they're two or four times as likely to have the disease as a doe, I promise you for every four or five-year-old buck, there's at least four or five does of that age class or older. So, uh, the worst case scenario, I think, is to, to have hunters stop hunting, stop shooting animalist deer, um, and then have deer herds, you know, become overabundant, and then we're in a world of hurt. So, yeah, but I, those I, are the things that were discussed, and hunters get very confused. You know, somebody in Missouri says, "Hey, they removed our restrictions." You know, Pennsylvania still has them. Um, so there's a lot of things like that across state lines where hunters see it in one state, and another state allows it or doesn't. It's very confusing for hunters, and, and that makes it tough. Yeah, you know, Kip, when you were saying that, I, I was thinking of a, I know some guys that were hunting in, in the CWD counties of, of Missouri where they did remove the antler point restrictions and and started encouraging people to shoot year-and-a-half-old bucks. And those guys started 
looking for leases counties away because they were like, there's no age structure in my counties and, and there's no sense in me hunting there because what what drew me there is no longer there. So it's time to go elsewhere. And you start thinking about that statewide. Let's say that happens statewide. You start looking out of state or potentially finding other hobbies, which could be catastrophic for the hunting industry. So uh, hopefully I, I, the whole CWD concept is just something to me that is fascinating. I, ho- I hope that we gain some ground and it sounds like we're gaining some ground to understand and hopefully combat what's going on i hope so uh, i know it was very good for uh, for that meeting partly in that we've had cwd in the east and the midwest long enough now that a lot of states have been you know have some good experiences managing it and you know have found lots of things that really didn't work for them so uh each time a, a state gets it you know they're kind of following the, the same thing other states were doing well i think it's time you know to kind of sit down and say all right what is actually working you know, if this is yeah. not working, let's stop doing it and figure out something that will. And uh, so there was a lot of that kind of discussion there, and uh, and I think that's extremely helpful. Yeah, I, I, re- I grew up in Virginia, and there was a, a smaller outbreak. It was kind of three counties where they're hot zone. When I was growing up, I remember, you know, I guess I was 12, 15, when it first kind of came out. Or I remember it anyhow um, about the disease in, in the northwest portions. And, you know, they've had it since then. Um, but you know, they did some control methods and, and, you know, in that area, but, you know, portions of West Virginia got it portions of, I think Maryland over in that area, um, a few, a few spots came up, you know, and it's just over now it's been, you know, 10, 15 years since that point. And, you know, what, what's the density of it then? I mean, now, excuse me. And has, has that worked, um, versus, you know, other states, let's say um, Arkansas, where that just recently came out that they had a, a large infestation, but they had predicted it had been, you know, brewing and, and a part of their um, deer herd for 10, 12, 15 years. Now it just came out a couple of years ago. So to me, it's just all interesting how, again, the different states are trying to tackle it, um, how in some areas it seems like it has spread more rapidly versus other where it seems like it's a little more contained and, um, I, I'm just scratching the very surface. I know there's people like yourself and, and others who are just diving headfirst into this, but um, it's just, it's really, it's all interesting to try and learn from other people, other states and densities and how, I guess, how we can best as hunters, you know, play our part. Yeah, it's certainly not a, not a good issue by any means. And, you know, and there are some out there that, that say this is not a big deal and, and, and they could not be more wrong than that. This is, this is a huge deal and it's impacting hunters all over the whitetails range. And uh, unfortunately it impacts more every year. So uh, um, I'm glad that there's some really smart people who are, who are studying the disease and trying to learn more about it so that uh, we can do a better job managing for it in the future. For sure. You know, Matt and I, the County that we hunt, the, the counties just South of there just got, put in the CWD zone. So for the last, I don't know, five, six years, it's been CWD, that's northern counties of Missouri. And then all of a sudden, the the, the research and, and I guess the information and the, and the information gained in the CWD in northern Arkansas came about. And now the counties south of us are all CWD management zones. So it's like, it's slowly starting to creep in around us. And, and of course, that means that there's no baiting, there's no, there's no mineral, um, 
And that kind of brings up, you talked about day two of the CWD symposium was Habitat. Um, was there any kind of cool research or what was, what was one of the big key points of, of that day? Day two was a lot of uh, states talking about their experiences um, managing in the face of the disease. So, you know, Missouri talked about what they're doing, Michigan talked, Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and, and some others. So it just kind of gave, hey, this, this is what we're doing. So it gave you an opportunity to kind of compare between states and then, you know, ask questions. You know, hey, why, why do you do this in Pennsylvania, but what they don't in Missouri? That kind of stuff. Um, so it was really good information. Um, I took a lot out of it because there's a lot of different things that the states are doing. And I, I asked the question, you know, you talk about lowering deer densities. You talk about, you know, banning urine, about not, you know, allowing minerals. Uh, can anybody show me a success story where, where that helped? And uh, right. it's a difficult thing to do because, you know, we, we don't know exactly how widespread it is. Or, But, uh, you know, all right, you know, you've asked hunters to give all of this stuff up. You know, did it has it reduced the incidence of CWD? And, you know, not a single state could say, yes, this has worked for us. So uh, I did, certainly didn't do that to you know, point any state out. And I sure. really was asking the question because I want to know, is there something I don't know? If so, you know, I want to share this with others. And, uh, you know, nobody had a success story. So that was a little, <laughs> a little disheartening. But I think more importantly, that points to, okay, we've tried all these things. We really have not been trying anything different. You know, maybe it's time to try something different. Exactly. Right. The answer to that question is really important, whether it's a good or a bad, it just helps basically redirect the management of it. Well, Kent, That's right. And, you know, there are some great deer management programs in some of the states that are, are in the states that have CWD. And, you know, and you guys are a perfect example there in Missouri. You know, Missouri has one of the top deer management programs in the whole country. So uh, at least there's there's very good people and very smart people working on that. And uh, so that provides a little bit of optimism anyway. For sure. Okay. So, Kip, well, we covered CWD. Um, I, I recently saw, I think it was through an email from QDMA, and I kind of – it kind of leads into the whole CWD and it's the whole, um, and I, I think we talked about it before we started the show is, um, yearling buck dispersal, how far, how fast, how many. And it was just some really interesting studies or research that you guys had put out there. Um, I kind of want to go into that. Is that all right? That sounds great. No, I'm, I think that's one of the coolest things research wise out there right now is just these deer movements and, uh, you know, we know so much more now with the use of GPS collars. So, uh, heck yeah, let's talk about the dispersal movement. So, what recently you guys had shared with everyone, um, if you're not a member, then you haven't likely gotten these updates stuff. QDMA will send out some some newsletters through your email of, of current research and things that are just, you know, happening in the, the deer world. So, if you haven't signed up for that, um, be sure to do so. But you guys just came out with um, you know, the stats and stuff behind dispersal of year and a half old bucks. And, you know, 70%, approximately 70% of yearling bucks disperse from basically their birth range. And that happens at two different periods, um, you know, spring and fall. And, you know, Kip, how does, how does that, in your mind, affect things with CWD? Well, we know that, uh, you know, a high percentage of those year, or those bucks are going to leave. And, uh, you know, about a quarter of them that leave, leave in the spring, you know, when the mother's ready to have her next fawn. And about three quarters of them that leave, leave in the fall when that mother's ready to, to breed again for the next year. 
So they kick them out. And we know also, and actually, you know what I should say, these studies have been done in the north, the south, the east, the midwest, mm-hmm. all over the place. So, you know, really solid data throughout the whitetails range. And uh, we know that when those deer leave, they're going to go on average one to five miles before they set up a new home range. So uh, from a, a disease standpoint, you know, if those bucks have the disease, you know, it's a, it's a big mechanism for them to move it, you know, a little ways or a long ways into a new area. So that's one of the, the issues with deer management. You know, they want to, you know, minimize that age structure of those deer because they know they're leaving and spreading the disease. Um, interestingly, that's one of the tacks that Pennsylvania says, hey, you know, most of these deer, you know, disperse in Pennsylvania before the rifle season ever starts. Right. So, uh, you know, the idea of killing these deer before they can move the disease really doesn't happen. You know, certainly some get shot during archery season, but sure. the vast majority of the deer harvest you know, in rifle season, those deer have already dispersed. So at least in Pennsylvania, you know, it's not a management strategy to, hey, kill them before they move the disease because they've already moved. Right, right. And and have been in that area, let's say, a couple of weeks now. If they're dispersed in the fall and it's dispersed in the springtime, then they have months of, of you know, urinating, um, exchanging saliva and stuff with the other deer um, in that area. So that that seems definitely logical to me that, in your case, in Pennsylvania, that's not a, a strategy that would necessarily work. I guess now from a a management, a habitat management standpoint, to me, this was kind of what I was thinking about when these you guys shared these numbers and such, that, you know, for for a guy who, who wants to do work on his, his ground, his property, you know, he wants to improve the habitat, he wants to make it, you know, and he wants to hunt it in a, in a, a manner that's really secure, um, you're not bumping deer. You're not interfering with that. Um, you've got great food sources. You've got great bedding areas, so on and so forth. When you're seeing deer disperse, you know, I, I know that they disperse at different rates based on basically habitat and forested areas, um, based on how far they're going to travel. But in your experience or opinion, if a guy's doing mm-hmm. habitat work in his area, and no one else around him is doing that, do you believe that a, a yearling buck is going to possibly prefer to stop in there or, you know, spend a little more time or put up a permanent residence there versus other properties who aren't doing the work? What's your take on that? I think that there's absolutely the opportunity for that. And, uh, and the reason being, you know, as these deer leave, you know, they're looking for a new place to, to set up shop to call home. And uh, think about it. If you move into a new neighborhood, you're kind of looking for a house to get, oh, there's a nice one. Oh, I bet that's really expensive. You know, maybe I can only afford one that's a little cheaper. It's not quite so nice. Um, think about it from a deer's end. Every house is, is free. So they can just pick whichever one they want. So if you moved into a new neighborhood, they said, you know what, Matt? Take any house you want. You can have it for free. You're going to take a nice one. You don't, exactly right. the same thing a lot of these deer do when they're moving into these areas. Hey, do I want to go to an area that stop here where there's almost no cover and very little food or – Hey, do I want to go over there? Well, there's great cover, a lot of early successional habitat, and tons of food. You know, that's where you want to be. So, uh, yeah, somebody who has the opportunity to, to manage habitat, you have a huge opportunity to draw more of those dispersing deer onto your property or to make them want to stay there simply from your efforts because you can just make it a lot nicer. And uh, it's not costing those deer anything, so the nicer it is, the more they're going to want to be there. I, I think that's a, a huge win for, for people who are doing the work and an encouraging thing to keep them going. And knowing that, you know, a lot of, a larger majority of deer are dispersing during the hunting season or during the fall time. 
I think that puts more emphasis on the work you do, obviously, outside of season. Preparing, you know, as season ends in, you know, December, January timeframe, most states, you know, you get back out there and you improve the habitat for next year, knowing that, okay, in the springtime, more deer are going to disperse. I want it to be in better condition. And then from that point on, you know, and you're going to have a bigger push in a couple months. So to me, that's just an encouraging thought to get out there and do the work, improve the habitat year in and year out, make it better and better for, you know, these, these bucks each year that are going to be dispersing out. Um, that's, that's good. I like that. Uh, I agree with your statement a hundred percent. That is exactly right. Now, Kip, I think we got a few more minutes before we get, before we let you off here. I just want to talk a little bit. I've been following your Instagram feed and, and Matt and I've been liking it because you've been doing some awesome stuff since season opened up, you took your daughter and then recently you shot a really nice uh, old, old doe. So um, kind of tell us a story about that. Uh, we, I have been very blessed so far. We've had a great start to the season, um, opening day of archery season. And I don't think I have ever shot a deer on opening day. Um, my young daughter um, shot her first deer opening day. Awesome. So, uh, a one-and-a-half-year-old doe with her crossbow. So uh, it was extremely special. She has hunted a bunch with me and killed a bunch of squirrels and a couple turkeys. And uh, so to have her add a deer to the list was just outstanding. And as anybody who has children and has watched them hunt, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about, how you're even more excited for them than for yourself. So, uh, so yeah, so opening day started great um, in Pennsylvania. Um, she is a mentored youth, so she can I can transfer one antlerless tag to her. That's it. So she's done shooting antlers deer for the year. She can still shoot a buck, but uh, this past uh, Monday night, uh, she had a doctor's appointment, which means she couldn't hunt. So her little brother, uh, Bo, went with me, and I took my uh, bow hunting. And uh, my little son, is he's uh, he seen me shoot a deer with a rifle, but never a bow. Um, had a great opportunity to shoot a doe Monday night with him at my side, which was tremendous. That's cool awesome. experience. Um, shot the doe, and then turned out, once we got uh, inside the mouth to look at the jawbone, um, my son is eight years old. There's a really good chance that this doe is older than him. But uh, <laughs> based on the wear, I'm I'm pretty confident it's the oldest doe I've ever shot, oldest deer I've ever shot. Uh, I'll uh, the oldest buck I I took was several years ago through through some manual analysis. Uh, they said it was eight and a half years old. So uh, which is makes him uh, one of my all time favorites just because of that age. Mm-hmm. Um, I will send the incisors in to do another cementum in line analysis to see, but uh, based on the wear on this doe and uh, the fact that her incisors were ground all the way down to the gum line, uh, wow. I am very confident that that deer was, was more than 10 and a half years old. And, you know, and it's amazing because we harvest a lot of antlerless deer on our farm. And uh, so, you know, the age structure is, is not that old. Um, you know, we, we do a very good job keeping the deer herd in balance and we like to eat venison. And so uh, how this old doe, uh, I'm sure that she's picked me off numerous times in the past and skirted <laughs> me and others. And uh, so uh, I don't know how I got so lucky uh, Monday night, but uh, it was meant to be, I guess. But, uh, um, you know, I tell people how, when you ask them how old a deer is and ah, I didn't look and think, you know, what a what an opportunity you're missing if you don't look in the mouth. Because this deer was special for sure. You know, every deer is a trophy to me. Right. The deer was special because my son was with me. But then by looking in the mouth and seeing how old she was, you know, it just adds a whole nother level of excitement to it. So uh, um, I'm, I'm glad that I did look in and I feel extremely fortunate uh, to have taken her. So uh, she's, def- she's probably the number one doe on my all-time list now. That's incredible. I, 
And when you say 10 and a half, I look back, I'm like, gosh, what was I doing 10 and a half years ago? And I was in high school. I was in high school. That's that's crazy. Adam, what were you doing 10 and a half years ago? I was in college. I was, uh, yeah, I was still in college. Um, and to think that that doe was, I guess, a fawn back then and still with us today is incredible <laughs> to me. How old's your daughter? My daughter's 11, 11 and uh, my yeah. son is 8. So, uh, so uh, who knows when the, the results come back. Uh, maybe that doe was even older than her, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> That's incredible. Now, I, I'm so excited, pumped to hear. I mean, you're getting your kids in, into deer hunting at a, at a young age, and it sounds like you've already got them started in, in small game hunting. That's how I started. And I just love hearing stories of kids getting involved in the outdoors. I think that's a very important for all of us, especially wanting to pass on that tradition. And, and a very excited and a huge congratulations to your entire family. That sounds like you guys are off to a great start. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, we're, we're very lucky for sure, and uh, I appreciate uh, the kind words. You know, Kip, there's Cutie Mae puts on an event each fall for getting kids outdoors, and that's kind of coming up at the, at the end of October. Is that right? Yeah, our national youth hunt. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and if and if there's people out there that want to just follow along on the event that weekend and, and check out how people are doing or, or volunteer, um, can you give a little bit of information on that hunt? Sure. We, uh, we, you know, we put up a big push into to doing youth events with our local branches, and many of our branches host youth hunts. Uh, we have a couple of very big military youth hunts that, that our branches do, and then we have our national youth hunt, which is uh, held uh, on, a, on a property in Georgia where we bring kids from around the country in who have never had the opportunity to hunt deer before or have never shot a deer before, you know, so we can make it a, a, an experience for somebody who wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise. Um, you know, extremely lucky kids. I've been got to be a mentors for a couple of them in the past. Um, essentially, we bring them into this camp, beautiful place to stay. Um, the Army Marksmanship Unit out of Fort uh, Benning is nearby. So some of the literally the top shooters in the world come out and spend time at the range with these kids, teaching them really how to shoot. And I'm promising you, there's a lot of chaperones. Who, uh, who may think they know how to shoot, looking closely over uh, the kid's <laughs> shoulders at the instruction uh, that's given. So the kids get, you know, a tremendous opportunity to really learn to shoot. They get some biology lessons, you know, and lots of fun things going on. Then they get to hunt, come back, you know, process the deer, you know, watch the field dressing. So all kinds of excitement, you know, that culminates around hunting. But there's so much other stuff to teach kids, you know, how much fun hunting can be. You know, you know, other things you're seeing in the woods and other outdoor activities, but uh, it is an absolute tremendous time. I always look forward to, to when I am there, you know, the kids from all over the country come, different experiences. You know, they leave lifelong friends in some cases, so uh, mm -hmm. it's just a tremendous experience for everybody involved. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. Getting people out there like who have never hunted, period, and just basically throw them into the outdoors teach them right and get them going. And then the, the rest is history. I'm sure for, for most of those kids, it's, it's tough not to get hooked um, really at any stage in your life, but especially as a kid um, being outdoors and learning and watching. Um, so that's awesome. Hats off to, to you guys for doing that each year. I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of work that goes into it. Yeah. Hank Forrester is our, our youth programs manager, or our hunting heritage uh, programs manager, and he handles the bulk of that. But, uh, he does a tremendous job with it, and uh, 
you know, because of that, we strongly encourage all hunters, you know, if you don't mentor somebody, you are really missing out on a lot of fun, you know, whether, whether it's a kid or an adult hunter, you know, should take the opportunity to take them hunting this year. Actually, the, the recent data from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just came out, and we sh- showed that between 2011 and 2016, we lost about 2 million hunters in the U.S. Oh, my um, God. You know, we only started with about 12 million. So uh, we're right now, hunters constitute about 5% of the U.S. population. That's the lowest percentage we have ever constituted. Um, you know, that's not good. That's not good at all. So uh, we need to do everything possible to, to bring more people into our ranks. And uh, mentoring is the perfect way to do it, and uh, it's a whole lot of fun for the mentor. <laughs> I would agree 100%. True words have never been spoken, Kip. Thanks for having you on. We'll let you get to it. Uh, always a pleasure. Hopefully we can have you on again soon. All right. Very good, guys. Thank you, and uh, obviously uh, good luck in the woods. You too, Kip. Take care. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Man. That uh, it gets me excited knowing that QDMA is doing so much for getting kids outdoors. Um, I know everyone always talks about you know introducing someone, introducing someone, but it comes down to the fact of are you introducing someone? Like sharing those numbers of like from 2011 to 2016 is like oh my gosh, that's just scary to think about two million hunters out of 12 million. That's um, that's a lot. That's a big impact to the sport to hunters, to the culture. Um, there's no doubt that a lot of things in society have changed, but we as hunters have got to got to realize that and got to really start mentoring kids. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll just, see, I'll just speak some truth here. A lot of that goes down to, in my opinion, that the fact that when we all love hunting, as adults, we all love it, all the hunters, but... The problem with that is, when when do you have time, when can you find time to take youth, and like here in Missouri, youth season is during always like the best weekend to bow hunt. So it's like, yeah, but here's the truth of the matter. If we don't start getting with it and introducing new, new people, we're going to lose it, and uh, that's why I just, it's it's almost frustrating to think about we we could lose this, and we're losing numbers. We're not introducing new people, basically because we want to enjoy it more ourselves. And if we don't, we're going to end up losing that. So to me, this is your if you're hearing it, call to action. It's time to get to work. It's time to go and and get new people introduced to the outdoors. And it may not even be deer hunting. If they've never been, shoot, take them squirrel hunting. When it's a hot weekend, take them squirrel hunting. Take them. Take them duck hunting during the winter after deer season. Just get people outdoors and interacting with the wonderful creation we have out there and growing to and getting them to love it. And as they love it, they're going to start doing more and pouring in more and, and deer hunting more and doing more and understanding conservation and habitat management and doing more. And shoot, who knows? Maybe they'll start saving up and trying to buy their own piece of land one day and then they can lead and introduce more people. But just taking ourselves and maybe taking our kids, I think there's more we can do. If you've taken a kid and, and they've already harvested one now, it's time to find a neighborhood boy that's never been and take them. Um, I think it's very important that we get people involved in the outdoors. And, and to me, 
with CWD kind of creeping in and being more aware and then hunter numbers dropping, it's a crucial time in the state of hunting to get to work. And I, I think, you know, when you introduce kids to the outdoors, really all you have to do is simply just be that mentor because the power of the adventure of, you know, new ground, new things, new experiences, um, that's, that, that work's done for you. You don't have to make it entertaining. The outdoors will take care of that. And, you know, I, I just, I remember my first hunt and it was just like, no question. It was the next day I'm going back or I want to go back. You know, it's like once they're out there, you know, and, and I guess hunting's not for everyone. I understand that, but you're going to know pretty quickly if they're enjoying it or not. I think, I think, uh, just because young young kids in the attention span and even me myself but um deer hunting may not be for everyone and when i say deer hunting i mean sitting still for a couple of hours not really talking that may not be for everyone right now especially a new hunter but squirrel hunting walking laughing duck hunting walking laughing and that's why i talk so much about quail hunting and and how to me that was what got me hooked because it was way more talking and laughing and the camaraderie and just and just getting out there, and then that led into, boy, I really like these outdoors. How can I spend more time in it? Well, quail season starts in November. Bow season starts September 15th. Oh, I'm, I'm going to pick up a bow because I can be out there more. And that just stacked on top of it and to where now it's like, now that I've kind of, my gosh, I love fishing, hunting, all types of hunting, deer, squirrel, ducks, turkey, and then the fishing, it's like, there's pretty much something for me to do outdoors year round. And and now it's like I've kind of I guess I've got that old soul where I'm I'm not gray-headed yet, but I already am talking about the conservation and preservation and the legacy of leaving and I'm only 30 years old and so I think if we can get people on board of getting in, into the woods and hunting and then introduce them to the conservation, I think we can really turn this ship back around and Get it going. That was ship. That sounded bad. Oh, and I said turn this ship back around. Yeah. So anyway, this big sailboat, this big cruise <laughs> yeah. ship, um, with P. You looked I, at me. I, you when you looked at me, I was like, "What did he think I said?" And then I'm like, "Oh, I said, I said a a, a, a boat." Yeah. And you were like, "You correct me." But yes, that was a um, ship with a P. We can really turn it around and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely a, a, a podcast for everybody, so we don't ever have curse words on here. So I, I heard, I heard it, and I was like, maybe that's my headphones. But I was like, I swore that was tell me that was ship. <laughs> we yeah, are sailing. We're, yeah. we're sailing right now. Okay. Yeah, Woo. yeah, for sure. So to me, it's just it, it, it's time to it, it's time to introduce people. And and Kip mentioned it that there's a lot of branches out there qdma branches that are hosting youth hunts i think the national youth hunt is down in uh, georgia close to headquarters and so there's other little branches i mean we just started a branch in southern missouri Um, of course we're so young right now we're still trying to get some the banquet set up but in the future we're going to host youth hunts and to me it's and maybe we'll even do some youth hunts like later but right now we're trying to get it all basically finalize but 
there's a lot of branches that are hosting youth hunts throughout the country. And if you're not aware of where one's located, get on the, get on their website, qdma.com, and search for the local branches. And hopefully you can find one close to you. And if not, and you're a serious deer hunter, this is something that's been, that I thought about this week. Um, if you're not uh, located near a branch, it's time to start one. And it, it's very easy to do. Um, you can sign up, and the biggest, and you're saying in your head, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if I can do that or not. Find the deer hunters in your area, and even if it's five of your buddies, you guys know five more buddies, and each one of you knows ten more buddies, and you can get one started, and just get the awareness spread, and and you guys can team up and and make some impacts in your neighborhood. And that that's super super important. I guess I'm gonna share next week. This this ties all ties that fall in together. Next week, um, if you're in the Virginia area, I'm gonna be speaking at uh, um, River City QDMA. They're hosting an educational seminar at the um, Short Pump Cabela's. Um, that's Short Pump, Virginia, at seven o'clock. Um, so if you're in that area love to um, talk with you but um, that branch River City branch at the end of September um, they host a youth event and I think they got an award last year through QDMA for that participation and their impact they had like over a hundred people out there for this youth hunt I mean it's a big thing in the community um, really high percentage of success rate and you know, that, that that number did include volunteers, but I think it's like 120 some people out there. Um, how awesome is that to get you know the backing, the support from landowners, um, and just have all those people just focused on getting kids and new hunters out there? Um, you know that's that's going to impact that area in a positive way for many many years, and they do that year in and year out. That that's pretty cool. One thing I'm going to give Kip some praise here on on his Instagram post. This is what I love seeing. When his daughter shot her deer, she was involved in the scouting, I think, the shot beforehand, of course, shot the deer, blood tracking, gutting of the deer, and then processing the deer. She was involved in the whole process of this deer hunt rather than just showing up, shooting the deer, and that's it. That, to me, pat yourself on the back, Kip. I love seeing the kids involved in the whole process and understanding what's going on, um, that it's just it's, it's more than just shooting a deer. And uh, to, to get her involved in the whole, the whole deal is just uh, amazing to see, and, and I encourage everybody to do that with their kids or youth hunters or even first time, maybe he's a 50-year-old man, never been deer hunting, and you've introduced him. Getting them introduced to the whole process, not just the shooting. Yeah, that's definitely important. Kind of reminds me this this past weekend, my um, my brother he was in New York for um, their opener of duck season, and him and his buddy, college buddy, um, Bryce Miller, they went up there with Bryce's wife and then Bryce's son, who's like, I think he's four and a half or five, um, but they just introduced him to the outdoor lifestyle. Of course, he didn't have a gun. But um, Adam, Adam, excuse me, Ashton told me a story of um, the boy, uh, Clayton is his name, that first evening um, 
they were out there in the marsh and it was really, it was like ankle deep, but they didn't want him standing in the water. He didn't have waders. He had like little, you know, shin high rubber, rubber boots. boots. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he had his face painted, camouflage, and he was pumped up and he'd saw ducks fly in the morning and everything. So he was a pro by this time. And they put him in this little, they call it just a jet sled that what the little, um, thing, a little boat like that floats to hold the decoy. So it's a tiny little thing. And, uh, they put him in that and they set him just behind him and uh duck started flying like 20 minutes before dark and um he kind of knew the process you know you call a little bit they come in they sh- he they shoot and he he's he's a pro so he's back there he's got his his uh earmuffs on and um he's marching back and forth and and this little boat is like 3 foot long and it's this little four and a half year old marching back and forth um in this boat like there's a duck, shoot him, got him, good shot. And he's just like yelling. And they're just sitting there duck hunting and, and watching these ducks dive in, drop into the decoys. And he's back there just, yeah, get him, dad, got him. And just carrying on. And they just, they thought it was the funniest thing. But that kid is pumped up, jacked up um, about duck hunting. He's never even killed a duck, but it's the process, the just being a part of it. And I'm sure he's he's going to remember that for forever i mean the kid was like jacked up hmm. and it was just hilarious listening to my brother my brother's got two boys too they're not of age yet to go but i know he's gonna uh, he's probably just waiting to take um his son lane out because of that experience that he's there so it's just a, the domino effect of you know taking someone new out watching the excitement and it, it carries on from there you know it just one person's affected, and then boom, down the road. You never know who else um, can be affected too. And I think for on shoot last week we dealt with this, or we're involved in this. But Seth Harker shot an ice buck instead of just going and getting it. He waited for us to get there, of course, to film. But he also brought his boy Trace along. Yeah. And I had more fun. It would be a lot of fun if it was just you, me, and Seth. Um, but. When he brought his son involved, I had way more fun interacting with Trace on that whole process and asking him, do you like shooting deer, blood tracking deer better? And, and just the whole conversations of, of just having him involved, um, I think that's a, that's a huge part. If you're not experiencing that, you're missing out. Because getting kids, especially excited kids involved, um, is, is amazing. It's awesome. And that, that goes with saying... What we're doing as hunters and introducing, I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think just introducing our kids is cutting it anymore. We're losing, I mean, as Kip said, two million, two million hunters in what was it, five, five years? years yeah. In five years, we've lost two million hunters. Just taking our kids isn't cutting it anymore. We need to be taking more people, introducing more people, and getting the outdoor lifestyle spread and getting more people involved. More people involved means more conservation money. More tags being sold, more money's going to conservation, more habitats being improved. I think that is just, we, we've got to. Yeah, and I mean, we don't, when we won't talk about politics or anything, but it, it still has that impact. We need, we need that community, that culture of hunters to stand united together, even, even in the numbers that we have. We just have got to you know, pull together. It doesn't matter if you bow hunt, if you duck hunt or whatever, you're a hunter 
and we need to be recruiting hunters and you know locking arms with with everyone around you and like there's some people who just rifle hunt and and you know or just bow hunt diehard bow hunters you're hunters you are our hunters and um you know there's too much other division out there for for hunters not to get along and and have uh one goal in mind that's recruiting hunters and continuing the lifestyle that's super important you know uh, we'll wrap up here in a second but i was just thinking of one thing that comes to mind and i'll, I'll be straight up honest with you guys um, Missouri, two years ago, I believe, legalized it to where anybody could use a crossbow. And I was totally against that. I thought, nope, not a chance. Don't like this. Don't like it at all. But now I've kind of came to realization that, for let's use Trace Harker as an example. Trace has been practicing all year, all summer long with his compound bow. He's been wanting to shoot a deer with his compound bow. But when it came down to it, they were going to. They had a, a blind brushed in the standing corn, and they had mowed some of the corn down, planted some stuff, and the deer were really pouring in there. When it came down to it, he didn't care about shoot about using his compound. He just wanted to go, and using a crossbow allowed him to go, and sh- he shot a nice buck. That was for me. Okay, I I kind of rethinking my whole mindset on these crossbows. I. There's a lot of kids that can get in the woods at an earlier age now or during other parts of the season rather than, for me, when it came to gun hunting or deer hunting, I could only gun hunt, didn't have a bow. So I only got to hunt youth season and then the 10-day rifle season. And that was it. But now, if I had a crossbow, then I could start hunting September 15th with that. And to me, that's that's pretty good when we can get people into the outdoors during a bigger time frame. Yeah, that that's super important. And the crossbow is is incredibly beneficial for um, young hunters. But then I, I think about, you know, new hunters as well. Let's say, you know, it is a, a, a middle-aged guy and he's never been, and he so he hasn't had the time to be able to practice with a compound, but, you know, now he has the opportunity to go out. Some guy puts a crossbow in his hands, takes a couple shots, it's sighted in, he knows what to do. If he goes out and he's successful with that crossbow, what do you think is going to happen? He's, he's going to go again. He's going to go again. He's probably going to dive in even deeper. Um, he may switch to a compound because he wants a different challenge. And it again, it doesn't matter what you're shooting because you're a hunter and you're part of it. And that's just that's just the fact of it. You know, it, it's more opportunity to get more hunters recruited out there. For some reason, as a, as a human being, we like to downgrade somebody who doesn't do it like us. Oh, you drive a Dodge, I drive a Ford. All right. You, you're driving a piece of junk, and I'm driving a nice truck. That We're both driving trucks. We're both country folk. Let's just support each other. Same thing with hunters. is just because he shoots a crossbow or he shoots, he likes muzzleloader hunting, he likes rifle hunting. It's I, Of course, I challenge everybody to, to continue doing things outdoors and, and challenging yourself and finding new ways to experience the great outdoors, but... Stand together as hunters and don't. I think a lot of times, especially in the world of social media, somebody posts something and somebody doesn't agree with it, and it's time to call them out. and And it almost causes division among hunters to where you're this camp and that camp instead of being the camp of outdoorsmen and conservationists. Now, that's to say, 
when we say that, it's also important for each and every one of us to be good representatives of the outdoors and the hunting heritage. There's a lot of eyeballs that aren't hunters that are watching us. There's a lot of, I have a lot of friends, you know, growing up, I didn't have a lot of friends in my class that were deer hunters. Um, and there was a few, but for the most part, a lot of my friends weren't hunters and I'm still friends with them on Facebook and they're still not hunters, but I still want to represent hunting in a good light. So if there's a way when you're, when you're posting your pictures and you're talking about it and you're, especially on social media, it's really important that we do it right. And we're being good examples of hunting and not posting pictures of, you know, what irritates me to death is when I... And I'll just flat out say it here, Matt. Now, hold your breath. I saw a post the other day about how to effectively shoot a deer in the head. And it was a slow-mo still frame of a deer getting shot in the head. And I about, I I mean, that just got my blood boiling. If you want to think about, you think it's cool, whatever. But think about the people that aren't hunters. That are, they're people that just see deer in their yard. And they're like, oh, deer are really cool. They're kind of not hunters, but they're not totally against it. They see something like that. They're probably turned off to the huntings because they put us all in a box. Be a good, be a good representative of the of the sport of hunting. You got anything? I, I, I've got so much to say, but I'll I'll keep it uh, I'll keep it under wraps here. Well, no, I mean it. We just have got to be mindful and respectful. That just comes down to it. Um, you know, that's just that's what it all boils down to respectful of other people who are hunters and who aren't hunters and um you know we got to protect our our culture think about the pictures you post to me uh, we post hero shots and we say hero shot that's us with with a a harvested animal and you look at it usually we clean up the deer clean up the turkey and for me it's not about like i don't i don't like to post the pictures to think that ooh, i'm i'm bragging with this deer but it's almost honoring the the animal to me and and showing how magnificent it is i think about it this past turkey season i shot a nice bird had just an absolutely beautiful coloration on his head so i posted a simple picture of the head of the turkey's head and how colorful it was and you know i had likes from people from new york city that were not hunters that just saw it and and the whole wording was basically how wonderful and beautiful this turkey was and how even though we harvested one, we're doing habitat work to improve the life of 20 others. And to me, that was shining a good light, not to toot my own horn, but I hope that there's more people that are doing that and, and talking about the conservation and the work they've done rather than just, check out old split toe. And so I think, I, I really feel like if we can change our direction of of being more conservationist than just, bloodthirsty hunters i think uh we can we can as i said earlier we'll turn this boat around for you matt yeah (laughs) yeah the boat (laughs) (laughs) well i i think um we hopefully got got that point across and and just observations we we feel like maybe necessary to share um and hopefully just shed some light on on different perspectives but i really real quick i know we're we're getting close to time but um, I want to go back and talk about that yearling buck dispersal. Um, I know they're just stats, they're just numbers, but man, like when I when I read them, um, I immediately just thought about the impact that, that has on hunters. And and when you're sitting in the the tree stand this fall, knowing that research that just came out, knowing that seventy percent 
of year and a half old bucks dispersed, three quarters of them likely going to do that during the fall. That buck that you're seeing as a year and a half when he walks by your stand or you harvest it no matter what, like that deer is likely a long ways from home. And depending on where you're at, like one, one of the stats is um, basically how far these bucks were traveling on average um, based on the forest cover. So how, however much forest was in that landscape um, helped to determine the average miles each of these yearling bucks traveled. Like northern Illinois, the average was over 20 miles that these deer were traveling from their birthplace to where they're setting up shop. And that's just incredible. Now that has a 2% forest cover because it's pre predominantly farmland, but just, I don't know. I, I, I just got to sit back and be like, wow, that's incredible. Like, let's say if you're in Pennsylvania, 50% forest covered, that, they're traveling about five miles. That's, that's, that's crazy to me. And I, I just have a little bit more respect for them thinking, wow, they're probably in this area that they have, like, it is just brand new. They don't know. But to me, on the flip side, if I'm doing the work, then I know that all these deer that are passing through my land, my property, is going to be that much more attractive to them. For years to come, they could set up shop, and now that's their permanent residence for, for many, many years. And that could turn into your hit lister three, four years down the road. Um, so that's just really, really encouraging. Something to think about, something to ponder when you're in the stand this fall um, and you see a yearling buck. Um, I don't know, I just kind of think about the their life history and you know there's a good chance that that deer is where they came from, from yeah their origin their family tree no i, I just think, i think it's i think it's neat um and again and, and encouraging to continue to do the work outside of hunting season and you'll see the effects because of the life the life history traits of deer and yearling bucks that boom you're gonna have an impact and it's gonna be a positive one so that's all i got on that well I don't really have anything to add to that. I just, I, I, the deer is, of course, all, I made the post yesterday. Pretty much every time I'm in the outdoors, I'm fascinated or awestruck by something. Yesterday, it was bur oak acres. But that, that day when I read that research, I was like, that is pretty doggone fascinating that, that they travel that far or push that far. And, and then, of course, you and I talked about it and it led into the whole habitat thing is once again, Driving home the habitat nail is improve the habitat in your place, and you're going to be way better off. Way better off. Way, way, way better off. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, I think we talked about it the other day. It was the, the phrase of, I'm so encouraged or whatever by the phrase of, you know, or, or the, the thought of learning more about the relationship between land and wildlife. Like, that to me just narrows down to a T um, what it is we're trying to do because that relationship is so strong. Like when you think about seriously something living off the land, you know, you, you hear, you hear that phrase with, um, you know, people who've moved off out West or, you know, they just want to have a little sustainable hobby farm. I want to live off the land. Okay. Let's think about a deer or a turkey or a quail. Those are the jokers who are out there living off the land and they have to have exactly what they need. Um, or they're going to go without or they're going to, you know, have to adapt or basically. So to me that understanding adapt or die. 
yeah, understanding that relationship that, okay, deer need this, turkeys need this. If I, if I don't provide that, they're going without. Um, if I just want it, if I want hunting to be better, I need to understand that, that there's a strong, strong relationship to understand, to improve hunting and improve habitat. I don't know. I love it. Yeah, me too. I oftentimes a huge storm rolls through and I just think, boy, it's nice to be in this house. <laughs> yeah. And then if you, <laughs> you haven't done much habitat and the habitat is very poor in your area and you're expecting the deer or the wildlife, especially the quail, poor souls, to survive it not only that night but all the nights to come it's like that's pretty pretty pitiful and it makes me want to go plant some blackberry bushes (laughs) they're so resilient that's a thing that like i feel like uh, i guess almost to their negativeness when it comes to people encouraging people to get out and, and do more habitat work like deer are survivors they obviously live all across the united states in so many different habitat types good bad ugly in cities they're resilient they're adaptable they're generalist but that doesn't mean we need to take advantage of that and not do the work to the habitat to improve it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i was thinking yesterday chad and i were headed in to hunt a spot and we were walking this edge of this big long alfalfa field and I looked and I saw like Johnson grass and Cerise Lespedeza and all this stuff. And I think about the farmers. Of course, that property is devoted to farming and, and both crops and cows. And it's like, how can we make this better for the wildlife? Let's just, and it was, we looked at the edges of those fields and the edges of those creeks. And it was just like, we could, we could just, it's as simple as sometimes spraying out what's there and letting, early successional ragweed and blackberries and whatever else grow up it's like that's a pretty simple that's one day of basically spraying the edges of those fields now we have better habitat just even though it's not much it doesn't seem like much but we're talking 20 yards wide for half a mile long that's a lot of that that's covering some ground and sometimes it's just as simple as that to help help the wildlife out but that pretty much covers up. I mean, we've gone, we've covered the spectrum today. We went from CWD all the way down to just getting hunters out there. And uh, we're serious when we say it. Um, hopefully, and Matt said it earlier, but I'm going to drive that nail home once again, is if you're not a member of QDMA, you ought to be. You should go sign up. Um, there's a lot of great e-blast emails coming through. Um, there's a great magazine that you get. And it's just you're helping conservation. And when you're helping conservation, you can't complain, right, Matt? Bingo. So go ahead, go join QDMA um, if you haven't already. And once again, thank you guys for joining us for another Land and Legacy podcast. And we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.